This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of these killers' crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Passion and loyalty, two attributes highly desired in a romantic relationship. But in the case of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, that passion and loyalty was combined with another less desirable attribute, bloodlust. Like a lot of young adults, Ian and Myra met at work. Their relationship, while slow to start, soon became quite heated. Between Myra's obsessive devotion and Ian's sadistic interests, some might say they were a match made in hell. From the summer of 1963 through the fall of 1965, Ian and Myra claimed the lives of five young victims. Their crimes became known as the Moore's Murders, a direct reference to the vast, uncultivated Saddleworth Moor, which served as the final resting grounds for their victims. Last week, we spent some time getting to know this devious couple, both from working-class neighborhoods, neither brought up by their biological parents. From the moment Myra met the twisted, motorcycle-driving Manchester bad boy, she was smitten. It took quite some time for Ian to return those feelings, but when the two finally came together, it was explosive. Sadism, blind devotion, and eventually, murder. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Serial Killers. Today, we're going to continue our investigation into the lives of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, the Manchester couple infamous for the murders of five children. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Serial Killers on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Ian's and Myra's first victim was 16-year-old Pauline Reed. 
On July 12, 1963, Myra convinced Pauline, walking on foot to a dance, to get into her car and help her look for a lost glove. Myra drove Pauline out to the moor. Ian followed behind on his motorcycle. Out on the isolated moor, Ian raped and murdered Pauline. They buried her on the moor. Killing came naturally to Ian, since he put no value in human life. Ian literally described human beings as maggots, a pestilence that he had every right to cleanse from the earth. Myra even casually mentioned to her brother-in-law, David Smith, that Ian liked to people watch at Central Station so he could watch the maggots crawling about. It wouldn't be until one horrific night on October 6, 1965, that David would realize that Ian was never people-watching at all. He was always searching for his next victim. But before David Smith played his instrumental role in bringing the murderous couple to justice in the fall of 1965, Ian and Myra killed with impunity for two years. Ian had long fantasized about committing what he deemed to be the perfect murder. Joining forces with Myra allowed Ian to play out his disturbed fantasies in real life. Myra rented the cars, bought the guns, and most importantly, lured the children. Children knew better than to wander off with an unsettling man like Ian. But Myra was just a friendly neighbor, someone they could trust. The children had no idea how wrong they were to trust this seemingly affable woman. A few months after murdering Pauline Reed, on November 23rd of 1963, Myra helped procure their next victim. She talked 12-year-old John Kilbride into getting into her car. Myra and Ian drove John out to the moor where Ian molested John and strangled him to death. Just like Ian, Myra reveled in their secret murders. Ian took photos of Myra posing over John's grave with her collie puppy, Puppet. On June 16, 1964, Myra and Ian saw Keith Bennett walking down the road to his grandmother's house. They lured Keith into the car. Myra and Ian took Keith to the moor, where Ian sexually assaulted and strangled him. During the planning and execution of these first three murders, Ian and Myra were careful and organized. They were very aware of the need to collect and destroy evidence, even remembering to count the buttons on the children's clothing to make sure no scrap of evidence was left behind, in the car or on the moor. But Ian was becoming too confident. He believed he was more intelligent than everyone around him, and he could use his allegedly superior intellect to get away with even more heinous murders. Ian began taking risks with his kills, risks that would eventually be his undoing. In the fall of 1964, Ian and Myra began inviting over a young neighbor, 11-year-old Patricia Hodges. Apparently, no one found it odd that Ian and Myra, both in their early 20s, were spending all their free time with a child. On Christmas Eve of 1964, they took Patricia Hodges to Saddleworth Moor, where the bodies of the couple's past three victims were already buried. For reasons known only to the couple themselves, they didn't kill Patricia Hodges that Christmas Eve. Instead, they selected their next victim two days later on Boxing Day, a holiday celebrated the day after Christmas in the United Kingdom. Amidst the lights and vibrant community of local fairground, the couple found 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. This was the first time they pursued someone in public together, and that's not the only thing that set this particular crime apart from the rest. 
The actual luring was similar to the times before. Myra dropped some boxes and asked Leslie to help her with them. The young girl agreed, but instead of going to the moor, they took her to their home. The killers were taking a huge risk. They weren't following Ian's perfect plan anymore of killing out on the abandoned Saddleworth Moor. And it's important to note that their home wasn't in an isolated location. It was situated in a lower class neighborhood where the houses were pressed close together and the neighbors all knew each other. Ian's belief in his own infallibility was escalating to a dangerous degree. Ian and Myra brought Leslie inside the house. They bound and gagged her and forced her to pose for pornographic images. Then Ian sexually assaulted and killed the young girl. Most hauntingly of all, Ian and Myra recorded the girl crying and begging for the couple to let her go home to her parents as they tortured her. Ian was so arrogant that he even had Leslie state her full name while the tape was rolling, which was what allowed police to later identify the child's voice in the recording. The recording shows just how reckless the pair have become. Ian was keeping incriminating mementos of his crimes, and Myra was happily enabling him. After killing Leslie, Ian and Myra transported the little girl's body to Saddleworth Moor under cover of darkness. They stripped Leslie of her clothes just as they had with the other victims, but for some reason they didn't burn the evidence. Instead, they buried Leslie in a shallow grave, naked, with her clothes in a heap at her ankles. Clearly, they only took off Leslie's clothes as a way of further degrading their victim. But the risks Ian had taken with Leslie's murder weren't enough for him. He needed something new to make killing exciting. And although Myra's devotion to Ian was the whole reason he'd been able to kill in the first place, he found himself growing bored with her obedience. He wanted someone who would stand up to him, someone like his brother-in-law, David Smith. But Ian's attempt to create a trio of murdering musketeers would soon bring an end to the serial killer's murder spree. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to serial killers. David Smith was born in 1948 in Manchester. As a boy, he grew up next door to Pauline Reed, Ian's and Myra's first victim, and knew her as a friendly, kind girl. When he was 13, he began dating 15-year-old Maureen, Myra's little sister. At first, David didn't get along particularly well with Myra or Ian, but things changed in 1964. David and Maureen were overjoyed to learn that Maureen was pregnant. The two teens got married in August of 1964, and David was surprised and pleased when Ian and Myra took David and his new wife boating as a wedding present. Ian apparently became interested in David after seeing David almost get into a fight with a man spreading rumors about sleeping with Maureen. He was especially intrigued by David's criminal troubles as a youth, once commenting approvingly on the fact that David had a criminal record. The two couples began spending evenings hanging out at David's house or even wandering Saddleworth Moor together, drinking and carousing. David found Ian's penchant for playing recordings of Hitler's speeches somewhat odd, but his mind was occupied taking care of his beautiful newborn daughter, Angela Dawn. But on April 25, 1965, David's world was shattered when six-month-old Angela Dawn suddenly passed away. David became angry and morose. He drank heavily. Unlike the grieving David, Ian was thrilled by this turn of events. 
Ian recognized that Angela Dawn's death had destabilized David and thought this was the perfect opportunity to bring his brother-in-law into the fold. David said, quote, Brady saw an opening then. That's when he decided which way things were going to go. He knew that I was totally vulnerable. Nothing seemed to mean anything to me anymore. I bailed out of life, my own and everybody else's too, end quote. Ian began his recruitment process with David much the same way he began it with Myra. He went on racist rants to David about Jews and black people. He gave David books by authors like Marquis de Sade and asked David to write book reports for Ian, proving that he understood them. The 17-year-old had no idea that the 27-year-old Ian was grooming him to be a killer. Of course, Myra knew exactly what was going on, and she wasn't happy about it. She didn't want Ian casting her aside in favor of David. Ian was also drinking heavily and losing control. Myra suspected, correctly, that it was a bad idea to try and expand their twosome into a threesome. But Ian ignored Myra's dissatisfaction with the situation. Just as he had once done with Myra, Ian began bringing up the idea of robbery. Ian tried to convince David to help him rob a bank as a way of handling David's unemployment. Of course, Ian wasn't actually interested in robbing a bank. It was all just to create a pretext to ask the question Ian really wanted to know the answer to. How far was David willing to go? Was he willing to use a gun? Was he willing to kill? Ian's next test was even more terrifying. One time, after David had spent the evening drinking with the couple, Ian pointed a gun at David's forehead and whispered, this is how easy it is to kill. Then Ian pulled the trigger. Fortunately for David, the gun wasn't loaded. David later wrote about the incident, quote, that night I felt death approaching, accelerating with unmistakable velocity. I thought it was my own, unquote. David was right to be fearful for his life. He would later learn that Myra and Ian had considered killing him in September of 1965. Ian suggested to Myra that the pair could lure David out of Manchester and then shoot him. But even though Myra had no sympathy for the children she helped Ian murder, she was very protective of her little sister, Maureen. Myra talked Ian out of killing David for her sister's sake. Despite debating killing David, Ian and Myra had a sudden surge of sympathy for the teenager when they learned that David's father had put his dog Peggy to sleep without David's permission. Despite their cruel and sadistic murders, Ian and Myra were dog lovers who pampered Myra's dog Puppet, the puppy they photographed at the crime scenes. When Myra learned that David's dog Peggy was about to be euthanized, she even drove over to the vet in an attempt to rescue her. Ian and Myra decided not to kill David after all. Instead, in a turn of events that would prove to be the couple's undoing, they convinced themselves that David would be a willing participant in their murders. On October 2nd, 1965, Ian and David spent the evening drinking together. Ian then announced to David that he had murdered people. Ian even confessed his reason for killing, the emotional high he felt from controlling whether someone lived or died. But of course, David didn't believe him. A few days later, Ian decided it was time to give David some proof. On October 6, 1965, Ian and Myra lured 17-year-old Edward Evans to their home, promising an evening of wine and relaxation. Myra went over to David's and Maureen's place and asked David to walk her home, claiming the streetlights were out. 
David agreed and walked Myra to the front door. When they arrived at Ian's and Myra's house, Ian invited David in, offering him miniature bottles of wine. David followed Ian into the kitchen and Ian gave him the wine. Then Ian ducked into the living room. As David idled in the kitchen, he heard terrifying high-pitched screams. Then Myra yelled, Dave, help him. David raced into the room only to stop dead as he saw Ian striking 17-year-old Edward over and over with an axe. David watched, frozen in horror, as Ian landed several more blows on Edward before finally strangling him with a piece of string. When Ian was finished, he casually commented to Myra, That's it, the messiest one yet. David realized a couple of key things very quickly. One was that Myra and Ian had clearly collaborated together to kill the 17-year-old boy lying on the floor. And the other was that if David showed any obvious signs of disapproval, he was going to end up on the receiving end of Ian's axe before the night was out. David forced a smile, trying not to let the couple know how terrified he was. He helped them clean up the living room and promised to help them get rid of the body the following day. Amazingly, Myra's grandmother had been asleep upstairs during the murder. When she called down to Myra to ask about the noise, Myra yelled back at her that she had just dropped something, and her grandmother went right back to sleep. Somehow David managed to convince the couple that he was on board with all of it. After hiding Edward's body in an unoccupied bedroom upstairs, the pair even began fondly reminiscing about past murders in front of him. But the entire time, David was plotting his escape from the murderous couple. The minute they let him leave, he rushed home and told Maureen everything. Maureen couldn't quite process what David was saying. How could her beloved sister be involved in murder? David and Maureen called the police from a public telephone and told them everything. David was terrified. He suspected that Ian and Myra knew he had failed their final test and that they were already planning to kill him. When the police arrived to investigate David's claims that Ian and Myra had murdered a 17-year-old boy, they initially found nothing suspicious. Ian and Myra were polite. There was no sign of blood or a struggle in the living room. It wasn't until the investigating officers found a locked room upstairs that the jig was up. Myra tried to make excuses, tried to dissuade them from looking in the room. But Ian knew that it was all over. He ordered Myra to give the detectives the keys to the locked room. Inside the room, they found the body of Edward Evans, Ian and Myra's final victim. When the police returned downstairs to arrest Ian after finding the body, Ian was calm, cool, and collected. He claimed to the detectives that he'd unfortunately been in an argument with Edward that had gotten out of hand. Despite David Smith explaining over and over to the police that both Myra and Ian were involved in the killings, the detectives didn't initially believe him. Instead, they chose to believe Ian's story about Edward's death. They arrested Ian, and they let Myra go free. Myra had been angry with Ian over his decision to trust David Smith. But with Ian arrested, Myra decided to stand by him. She didn't attempt to flee the country or evade police. Instead, Myra went to work and asked to be let go so she could collect unemployment. While at the office, she destroyed a closed envelope of Ian's. In a police statement released years later, Ian said that Myra likely spent her precious days of freedom burning a hoard of photographs and paperwork. Some of those photographs may have indicated the location of Keith Bennett's body. 
At the time, Myra simply told the police that she believed the envelope she destroyed contained one-off plans for bank robberies and they had nothing to do with the murders. But of course, this was in all likelihood another lie. Four days after Ian's arrest, Myra was arrested as an accessory to murder. With David Smith's help, investigators were also able to link Ian and Myra to the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and John Kilbride by the end of October. Myra and Ian quickly worked together to get revenge on David Smith for turning them into the police. Both of them implicated David in Edward's murder. One police officer recalled Myra saying repeatedly, quote, I didn't do anything. Ian didn't do anything. We didn't do anything. It's that Smith, end quote. The couple was once again united in their protectiveness of each other. They may have not been able to murder David Smith from behind bars, but they did everything they could to assassinate his character. Their smear campaign proved shockingly effective. Despite the fact that David was the key witness for the prosecution who had stopped the couple's murderous rampage, Myra and Ian soon convinced the press, the public in general, and heartbreakingly many of the victim's family members that David was just as much to blame for the killings as they were. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now back to the story. Despite Ian Brady's and Myra Hindley's ability to manipulate the press into blaming David Smith for their crimes, the couple wasn't able to fool police. Meanwhile, David Smith was proving himself to be invaluable to the investigation as he warned police about additional evidence, luggage that Ian and Myra had stored at a warehouse in Manchester. A week after Ian's initial arrest and after a citywide search for these suitcases, police recovered two cases on October 15th. Inside, the contents of this luggage held a key to much more than authorities could ever have expected, and finding them changed everything. Up until now, Ian was being held for one murder, and Myra wasn't even seen as an active participant. Without David's information, there's no telling whether both killers would have been brought to justice. Inside the suitcases, police found evidence linking both Ian and Myra to the murder of Leslie Ann Downey. The contents included pornographic photographs and a 16-minute tape of the young girl pleading with her captors for mercy. It's no surprise that this tape proved to be a key piece of evidence in their trial a year later. One of the most telling things discovered on the tape was who could be heard on the reel-to-reel recording. A woman screaming at the little girl to shut up and threatening to beat her. This woman was undoubtedly Myra Hindley. When the police returned to search Ian and Myra's home, they found a book with John Kilbride's name written in it and countless pictures of the couple on top of a moor. After interviewing neighbors, police met Patricia Hodges and realized how narrowly the 11-year-old had escaped a similar grisly fate. Patricia told police all about her long walks on the moors with the couple past the graves of the children they murdered. Police subsequently discovered the body of Leslie Ann Downey. Downey's mother was able to identify her daughter by the clothes that Ian and Myra had left behind in her grave. A few days later, police found the remains of John Kilbride. Forensic testing was but a fraction of what we have available to us today, but with the evidence the police already had in their possession and the bodies of the two victims, they were able to charge both Myra and Ian in connection with the murder of Leslie Downey. 
Myra wasn't initially charged with the murder of Edward Evans, but after nearly two months of further investigation, she was charged with this murder in December of 1965. They weren't able to charge Myra with the murder of John Kilbride, but she did receive charges for knowing about it. Ian, on the other hand, received murder charges for all three victims. For those of you keeping track at home, you've likely noted that two names are noticeably missing. Victims Keith Bennett and Pauline Reed. Police initially had no idea that Keith and Pauline were also Ian's and Myra's victims, and Ian and Myra said nothing about the additional two children they had killed. There were plenty of times they could have come clean over the course of their trials, but these names remained out of mind and out of sight. Even when police recovered a plethora of photographic evidence placing both Ian and Myra on the Saddleworth Moor, they said nothing. Their trophy photographs, however, spoke volumes. The two took photographs posing over the children's graves. And it was through a photograph of Myra posing on John Kilbride's grave that the police were able to locate his body. During the course of the investigation and trial, there were very few examples of Myra showing empathy. But when she did show empathy, the instances all involved one thing. You're speaking, of course, about Myra and her colleague, Puppet. As we mentioned before, despite being a callous murderer, Myra was a dog lover who doted on Puppet. Police wanted to use the dog's age to determine a timeline for when the pictures of the couple were taken. While undergoing the necessary tests to corroborate police evidence, the dog passed away from complications with anesthesia. Myra wrote to her mother from prison about her heartbreak. Quote, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this. The only consolation is that some moron might have got hold of Puppet and hurt him. End quote. While Myra showed sadness over the death of her dog Puppet, she displayed absolutely no emotion when confronted about the children's murders. Myra played naive throughout. Even when faced with her own voice on the tape recovered from Leslie Ann Downey's murder, she was impassive. Ian, likewise, showed no emotion at all during his trial. He remained steadfast that he hadn't killed Edward Evans, but fully admitted to hitting him with the blunt side of an axe. It was a game of semantics for Ian. Experts noted that the blows from the axe would have eventually killed Edward, but the cause of death was ultimately listed as strangulation. That action is something Ian never copped to during the trial. After a 14-day trial and just two hours of deliberation, the jury found them both guilty. Had this taken place a year earlier, the ruling may have gone very differently. But Myra and Ian faced their sentencing shortly after the Murder Act abolished the death penalty in the UK. With lethal punishment off the table, both Myra and Ian were sentenced to life in prison on May 6, 1966. Ian was sentenced to three life terms, while Myra was sentenced to two life terms and an additional seven-year sentence for her knowledge of John Kilbride's murder. It was the only punishment available for them. Judge Atkinson, who presided over the case, referred to the crimes as, quote, three calculated, cool, cold-blooded murders. Nearly 20 years after the two were caught, investigators found themselves back out on the moors. A local journalist managed to get into Ashworth Hospital, where Ian was being held. Over the course of their meetings, Ian hinted at the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, eventually confessing to both of them. 
Ian had a very specific reason for confessing. He heard that Myra was trying to present herself as Ian's victim. She now claimed that she was a changed person, a reformed person, a good person who deserved to be released on parole. But of course, Myra had never confessed to her role in the murders of Keith Bennett or Pauline Reed. And by revealing the additional murders that Ian and Myra had kept secret for so long, Ian derailed Myra's chances of getting out on parole. For years, authorities had suspected that Pauline and Keith were victims of the Moore's killers, but they had no grounds to continue the investigation. Finally, in 1986, they were able to reopen the investigation and return to Saddleworth Moore. Police initially assumed that Myra wouldn't help them. But when they went to interview Myra about Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, they were shocked when Myra simply said, yeah, what do you want to know? She may have been motivated to help after receiving a letter by Keith's mother, Winnie Johnson. Winnie wrote in part, quote, Dear Miss Hindley, I am sure I am one of the last people you would ever expect to receive a letter from. I am the mother of Keith Bennett, who went missing, no one knows where, on June 16, 1964. As a woman, I am sure you can envisage the nightmare I have lived with day and night, 24 hours a day since then. Not knowing whether my son is alive or dead, whether he ran away or was taken away, is literally a living hell, something which you no doubt have experienced during your many, many years locked in prison. I am a simple woman. I work in the kitchens of Christie's Hospital. It has taken me five weeks' labor to write this letter because it is so important to me that it is understood by you for what it is, a plea for help. Please, Miss Hindley, help me. After receiving Winnie Johnson's letter, Myra agreed to help police try and locate Keith's and Pauline's missing bodies in the moor. Was the correspondence from Keith's grieving mother just too much for her? Maybe Myra genuinely felt guilty after receiving the letter. Or maybe this was just another attempt to prove that she had actually changed for the better. And thus, police continued the search on the moor. Ian took a trip with police, and not long after, Myra took her second trip. Eventually, they found the body of Pauline Reed, within 100 yards of where they'd found Leslie Ann Downey years earlier. Ian began relishing his role as a brutal child killer. Ian wrote a letter to a local news station and said that he'd killed at least five other victims that they would never be able to trace back to him. Myra, on the other hand, tried to portray herself as Ian's victim and claimed that she didn't leave him because she was scared for her life. This was likely yet another attempt to shift the blame away from herself so she could be released on parole. And when acting like a victim failed to earn Myra her freedom, she tried another tactic. She attempted to show remorse for her role in the killings. She allegedly told her lawyer, quote, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Brady's because I enticed the children and they would never have entered the car without my role. I have always regarded myself as worse than Brady, end quote. But Myra's attempts to show that she had changed and earned her freedom failed utterly. In May of 2002, Myra Hindley died in prison at the age of 60. Ian, a man of ego until his final days, did not go quietly into the night. On multiple occasions, he tried to starve himself to death, but to no avail. He was bored of life at Ashworth Hospital. 
Ian's death wish finally came true on May 15, 2017, at the age of 79. He took the knowledge of Keith Bennett's resting place to his grave. But despite Ian's death, police have promised to keep searching the moors, looking for the stolen child who never came home. Only then will we truly be able to close the book on Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, two of the most notorious serial killers in modern history. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Serial Killers, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Monday as we delve into the twisted psyche of Elizabeth Bathory. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by Blythe Ann Johnson and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>